We've been saying, and I think it's true, Romans 8 is perhaps the profoundest, the deepest, the heaviest, and the most theological passage in the whole Bible on the key to experiencing God, and that is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is an entire systematic theology on the doctrine, the nature, the character, the work, the agenda, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you and unites you with God. That Christianity is basically a matter of spiritual union and communion with God through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ in the power and agency of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit actually indwells you and unites you to God through Jesus Christ. Which is why C.S. Lewis, in a very provocative, dare I say daring way, took the doctrine of union with Christ as being so real that he called Christians little Christs. Now, recognize in saying that, Lewis said, and I'm saying also, so, so here come the qualifications so that I'm not being doctrinally incorrect. He's not obliterating the creator-creature distinction. He's not saying you are Jesus Christ. But what he is doing is he's saying, Christians, wake up to a fundamental reality in your life. You are so united to Jesus Christ that it is as if you are a little Christ embodying Christ to the world in the world. In other words, he's basically taking seriously passages like we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And Peter, who says we participate We don't just imitate like we're here and there's there and maybe we'll follow. We actually share in and participate in the divine nature. And we do all of that through the ministry, the character, the agency, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we've been saying from the beginning that there is a logic to Romans chapter 8. That the argument Paul gives follows a flow and a logic it builds upon one another. That all experience of God is due to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what is the point of everything the Holy Spirit is doing? Some people would say that the book of Romans is kind of the climax of the Bible. Romans 8 is the climax of the book of Romans. And Romans 8, 38 38 and 39, which we'll get to next week, is the climax of Romans 8. So Romans 8, 38 to 39 is the climax of the climax of the climax. And what does it say? It says, for I am convinced, for I know that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Holy Spirit's job is to unite you to Christ, to show you and convince you that nothing, nothing in all the universe, in all the galaxies, in all the cosmos, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And basically, Paul is saying, to the degree that you don't understand that, you'll still be a Christian, but your life will lack 
joy. Your life will be defective. Your life will lack fullness. You can be a Christian without understanding or really knowing this, but you can't have anything like the fullness that the Bible describes. Things like Jesus himself in John chapter 7, when he was describing the work of the Holy Spirit, and he said on the last and final day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, he said, if anyone believes in me, let him come to me and drink, and rivers of living water. The fullness, the exuberance, the abundance of the fullness of life will flow from your heart and water the entire earth. And then John narrating this said, oh, by the way, readers, pay attention, because when Jesus said this, I can only tell you this because it's years after and it's now been fulfilled. He was talking about the Holy Spirit that Jesus was later to pour out, and he hadn't given yet because he hadn't been glorified. Not that the Holy Spirit didn't have a role in salvation for the Christians and the saints of the Old Testament, but the Spirit he's talking about is the Spirit that the sovereign, ascended, glorified Lord, Lord of lords and King of kings, was to pour out upon his people. And that Spirit is like rivers of living water. And the key to that to understanding what the Spirit is doing, is He's giving you the foundation that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we're building up close to the end of this chapter where Paul is leading us to this wonderful crescendo. We'll get to that next week. And the passage we're looking at this morning is perhaps one of the most famous, well-known. You'll hear people in the world, I don't know if you'll hear them always quote it correctly, but how many times have you heard people, something bad has happened, something tragic, something unfortunate, and they said, well, we know all things work together. Hmm. For good. I'm not sure that's what the text says, by the way. We'll get to that. So it's one of the most famous, one of the most well-known, one of the most familiar passages of Scripture that there is. And in this passage, God wants to show us how we can have utter confidence and assurance in him. It's actually a very encouraging passage if we understand it correctly. And how can we? How do we know that God is ultimately for you? It is what you need to know above all things. You need to know that God is for you. And this passage shows us this in three ways. The text gives us three answers to the question, how do we know God is ultimately for you? We know God is ultimately for, for you because of his sovereign promise, because of his sovereign purpose, and because of his sovereign process. How can we know God is for you? There's an amazing pro promise that leads to a definite purpose following a very logical process. And guess what? This is one of the simplest outlines you'll ever face, by the way. Verse 28 covers point one, verse 29 covers point two, and verse 30 covers point three. You know what? You can come up here and preach this sermon and probably do it just as effectively. That's how simple the outline is. Even three people, this is the kind of thing, if I ask you in six months this outline, you ought to remember. Sovereign promise, sovereign purpose, sovereign process. Now let's take a look. Verse 28 gives an absolutely startling and amazing promise. It says, and we know. Now, one of the things Paul is getting us to do is he is challenging you to think it out. He's been doing this from the beginning. There is a logic 
Theology is basically theo or God logic. So begin to think out. He says, we know that for those who love God, so it doesn't just say we know that all things work together. There's a condition. There's a, he says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What he's basically saying here, he's thinking it out. Here's the God logic, and he's saying our confidence, our assurance is in the sovereignty of God. That God is overruling, that God is superintending, that God is controlling, that God is orchestrating, that God is ordaining, that God is writing this story and all of our stories. And we are bringing our little story into his larger story. And when we are conscious of that and think that out, we can say, we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for our good. Now, I want you to think about this in context before we work on applying it. Because in the context, Paul began in verse 17. I preached on this last week. Talking about how the Christian can face suffering, trouble, pain, persecution, temptation, and hardship. The general ordeal of facing life in a fallen world. And taken in context, Paul is not sugarcoating Life or reality? So let's begin to apply this. Ask yourself the question, how would I be different if I really started to think this out and believe this? How would I be different? Because God's word is not for information. God's word is for formation. The correct information is for God to form you, to make you different. So I want you to begin to think, how would I be different if I began to truly massage this deep into my soul? Do what the psalmist said, the wise man does, which is meditate. You know what meditate is? It's like chewing on it deeply. Like dentists tell us, we're supposed to chew on our food 32 times before you swallow it. I'm not sure I get the two. That's how bad I am. See, I don't meditate on my food. How good, how well do you meditate on scripture? Do you chew it the equivalent of 32 times to soak it into your soul. And how would you be different if you began to go, wait a second, do I really know? How would I be different if I know? Do I believe that I know? What are my doubts towards this? What does this show me about the loveliness and the excellence and the greatness and the beauty of Christ? Or do I just show up on Sunday morning and sing how great is our God and I don't have a clue what it really means? See, let me give you a couple of areas where I think we would be different if we believe this. First, I think we would begin to relax. I think there would be somewhat less fear and anxiety because this promise tells us that God is at work. Get this. All things really means all things. That means he's at work in the little things, the big things, the good things, the bad things, the right things we do in life, the stupid things we do in life, the times we're wise, the times we're foolish. The times we speak and we go, can I get that word back? This is saying God is at work ordaining, orchestrating, writing, sovereignly controlling every aspect of your life for your good. I think if we believed that a little bit, that we would, that his sovereign plan, his sov- this promise might be a comfort to us. 
that we wouldn't need to fear as much life and circumstance. It's not saying there won't be pain or trouble, but what it will begin to form in our lives, the deeper we massage this into our lives, is trust. Tim Keller mentioned in his study on Romans that the Greeks believed that even Zeus was subject to the fates. Paul is saying here, we're not subject to the fates. We have a personal God who is sovereignly writing his story for each and every one of us. And David Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans says, it is one of the most glorious things we can ever know about ourselves. Do you know that as a Christian, all things are working together for good for you? Do you know that God is overruling everything in the whole cosmos for your good? Secondly, not only does this free us from fear and anxiety, but it also gives us a proper perspective towards suffering, difficulties, and even our failures. John John Newton, the great composer and writer of Amazing Grace, wrote the following. He said, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Now let me read that again. If he sends it, you need it. It's for your good. Everything is necessary that he gives you. And if he doesn't give it to you, you may long for it. You may say, I I have to have these friends. I have to have this comfort. I have to have this financial security. If he doesn't send it, if he withholds it, you don't really need it. This means that if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld from us, in reality, we absolutely don't need it. That means bad things don't, will not, and cannot, that's powerful, cannot ruin us. They're there to mold us, to shape us, to humble us, to teach us, to enrich us. Even our failures, our immaturity, our stupidity, the mistakes we make won't ruin God's purposes for us. I'm going to say it again when verse 28 says all, all means all. The psalmist in Psalm 138 verse 8 said, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Now the part that's often misunderstood. Who receives this promise? The text says those who love God and are called according to his purpose, which means not everybody is the recipient of this promise. See, the good and bad things of life have a good effect on us because God overrules and uses them for our good. It seems that this is saying that both the good and bad things that happen to someone outside of Christ can have an ill effect on them. Now, how could that be? Now, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this argument, but he says, think about this for a second. Going back earlier to Romans chapter 1, verse 24, God says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, what does that mean? This means that one of the worst punishments that can occur in your life is not the bad things that happen to you, but that one of the worst punishments that can happen in your life is God giving you what you want. God giving you truly the sinful desires of your heart. That God can give a person, one of the worst punishments God can give a person is to let them have the desires of their sinful hearts. In other words, to let them have what they want. So Dr. Keller says, so how, for example, can it be bad for those who don't love God? Well, 
those who don't love God, people outside of God, what do their sinful hearts want? They're living under the illusion, under the pretense that they're self-sufficient, self-made, autonomous, free, in control of their life, self-made people. They believe they're in control of their lives. And so while bad circumstances for the Christian can wake us up to the true condition of your life, that you are contingent and dependent and thus have a good effect on you, It can also reinforce the illusion and bring out the worst in our hearts. Pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, self-centeredness. So in other words, good circumstances can be terrible and bad circumstances can be wonderful. Tim Keller closes his argument with recounting this proverb. He says, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So what makes life good is not a particular set of circumstances. Are you seeing how much we have to reframe our thinking? What makes life good is not, we went to this great restaurant, our team won the football game, although I am happy that OU won last night. That is not the definition of good. What makes our life good is how God uses the circumstances interacting with our hearts to accomplish a certain purpose. And that brings us to our second point. Look with me at verse 29 in God's sovereign purpose. It says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Friends, this must be one of the most important passages or verses in all of scripture to tell you exactly what God is doing in your life. This is one of those, you know, there's so many aspects of our lives where God doesn't tell us what he's doing. There's mystery. We can say, God, why? Or I don't get this, or I don't understand this. And we won't. There's mystery. Here's one we can know exactly what God is up to 100% of the time because, and I'm speaking now to present Presbyterians who believe in Presbyterian, who believe in predestination. It's biblical, the word's even there. But do we believe in the purpose of predestination? Or do we think predestination is God basically going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo? I choose mo and I don't choose this one. Because that's not how predestination works. Look at the text. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to. In other words, here's the purpose of election. Here's the destination God is taking you to be conformed to the image of his son. See, when Paul ends verse 28 with the words called according to purpose, verse 29 explains exactly what that purpose is. And in a nutshell, everything that happens to us the good, the bad, the ugly, the foolish, the stupid, the mysterious, the known, is done for one reason, to conform our character to that of Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, he says, God not only brings his power to bear on every circumstance, but he conforms all events to cohere in his master plan. Everything is working together so we will be conformed to the likeness, the image of God's Son. God is about character change, heart change. 
What makes everything work together for good is God's purpose. And God's purpose, this is where C.S. Lewis was right, was to, is to have little Christs, little embodiments of the truth, not to be Jesus, but to represent him, to be like him, to be conformed. It's almost like he's saying there is a master image. There's a master icon. As a matter of fact, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 says exactly this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being, the radiance of his glory. And you are in Christ. So there's the master plan. There's the blueprint and now what God is doing is he is sculpting, he is polishing, he is refining, he is doing whatever it takes to make you like him. And we ask, what is he like? And that's what brings us to passages like the fruit of the Spirit. What is Jesus like? Jesus is ultimate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There's your blueprint. And what is he doing? He is using the circumstances of your life. So he's using people that are difficult for you. Children who are not exactly behaving like you want them to. People that give you tension. Relationships that are hard. Circumstances that are scary. He's using all of this to make you that blueprint. 1 Corinthians 13 is another perfect place. What do you think Paul is just describing? He's giving a personification of what Jesus is when he says love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't envy, love doesn't boast, love is not rude, love is not irritable or resentful, love rejoices with the truth, love bears or endures all things. The gospel shows us picture after picture after picture of Jesus fulfilling that. Enduring false accusations, enduring scoffing and mocking and ridicule and misunderstanding. And God's sovereign purpose, he predestined you for the purpose of making your heart from the inside out, your character, like Jesus. God has a master design, his name is Jesus, and he's conforming you to that. And the form is not simply outward or superficial. It is total and complete. It's from the inside out. He is right now making you, if you are a Christian, this is just, this is his sovereign purpose. He is making you as loving, as noble, as true, as wise, as strong, as good, as joyful, as humble, as kind, as Jesus is. That is the purpose towards which God is superimposing and working out everything for your good. You can wake up tomorrow morning and say, what does God want to do in me today? He wants to make me like Christ. He wants to form my character after the image of Jesus. Now, what is his process? Well, look with me at verse 30. And he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, when you include verse 29, there's five verbs. Four new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. All that God did, the process of working out his sovereign grace. Now, look at each of these verbs. Four new means what? It means he set his love on us. You know, that's the heart of the covenant. When we are 
when we receive the covenant from God, when we enter into it, it's not some, uh, how do I say, bilateral, where we're entering into a, an agreement with God. It is God covenanting unilaterally, sovereignly with us, that he is going to set his love upon us. That he is going to be bonded and disposed graciously towards us. To foreknow is a com- it's, it's not just foresight, like, oh, I have the information that Jeff might go to hooligans today for lunch. That's not foreknowledge. Yes, does God know that? Of course. But foreknow means he has foreknown to set his covenant love upon us. That's why those scary words in Matthew 7, when Jesus said, some are going to be standing before me, and I'm going to be say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Those words don't mean I didn't know you exist. I didn't know about, oh, you caught my omniscience taking a break for a day. That's not what it means. It means depart from me. I have never set my love upon you. It's kind of like the words that Carl read earlier from Deuteronomy. It says, I love you. Why? Because I love you. Nothing's behind the love. I have foreknown you and I have foreknew to set my love on you. Which means then, those he foreknew, he predestined. And predestined, think about the word. It means beforehand to set a destination for. He has set a destination for us. And we already reviewed what that destination is. That destination is to be conformed to the image of his son. Before the foundation of the world, he set a destination that he would have restored image bearers reflecting Christ in the world. Can you imagine how different the church in the world might be if we actually reflected Jesus instead of our opinions, our thoughts, our freedoms, our this? If we actually thought about, before we spoke, how might I reflect Christ in what I am saying and how I am saying it. That God's purpose is for me to reflect Jesus. That that's what he predestined me for. That's the destination he set me out for. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he called means the personal illumination that God sends us to awaken us to the truth. Justified is the declaration that we are not guilty, but that we are forgiven and righteous, that we are acceptable because we are declared and clothed in the acceptability. Think about this. Instead of thinking just always in the theological term righteousness, and we don't have a clue what it means, think about what this means. Because Jesus is righteous, he's totally approved of and accepted by God, right? Now that righteousness is declared or imputed to you, which means what? It means, because you're in Jesus, you are just as accepted, just as approved of, as Jesus is. Again, imagine how different we would be if we actually lived our life believing we were just as approved of. We wouldn't have to go out seeking our own approval, demanding our acceptance, trying to prove our worth, trying to vindicate ourselves all all the time. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, what are you expecting to hear next? You're expecting to hear sanctified, aren't you? Huh. 
No. Those he justified, he also glorified. And look at it. He uses the past tense. He's describing what is an event to occur yet in the future. It is as certain, Paul is saying, as if it's already happened. See, what is glorified? It is all sin being eradicated in body and soul so that we experience perfection in every level of our existence. And Paul is writing, to you it is so certain because of Jesus, it is as if it's already happened. Do you think maybe we should wake up to some of these truths instead of defending ourselves and proving ourselves? Again, how would this make us different? I think this would produce, if we started to really embrace this and bring this in, can you imagine the communion with God, the intimacy, the freedom we'd have in relationships with one another if we were truly free from having to prove ourselves? Can you imagine what it would be like to move out into the world with this kind of poise and confidence and power, knowing that we really can't be rejected. Yes, God can be rejected, but we really can't. God is at work in us for our good and his glory. Friends, God's sovereign promise, God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign process. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, your will, what you're doing in our lives. And help us, Father, to think theologically, to think it out. The text began, and we know. Help us to really know that for those who love God, who are called according to the purpose of having a destination set before us, being conformed to the image of Jesus, All things have to work out for good. Which certainly doesn't mean a pie-in-the-sky existence. There will still be pain. Good and bad things happen to the believer and to the non-believer. This is not promising us that bad things won't happen to us. And they really are bad. Tragedy and death and disease and ruin do come to the Christian. And somehow... You are still conforming us to the image of Jesus, even as we experience the pain and call the pain, pain. Call it for what it is, and we lament it. We cry out, and we feel it. We don't sugarcoat it. So, Father, help us to be the new human beings you've predestined us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.